0: So right before we started, I was telling you how there was this diversity plan that was supposed to begin, but then it didn't Mm -hmm. because of the pandemic. Um, So you had, you, this is, me tell, like... This is my first time. You never heard about it? Never.
1: And I'm very much into figuring what's going on with school, uh, what's going on in my community,
0: and nothing. You met Charmaine Baptiste and her son Elias at the end of the last episode. I spoke to them in December 2021. More than two years after this proposed diversity planning process set off a firestorm in District 28. But Shermaine had never even heard of it. I haven't heard nothing from it from anybody at all. Nobody at all. Nothing.
1: You you just telling me this is the first time I heard it. Ever.
0: I didn't tell her much. But what she heard, she took personally.
1: I feel like they don't want my son around. Uh, And they don't even want to give him an opportunity. Why? Tell me why. Why you don't want my son to be in, in in that school or, you know what I'm saying? Why? What is a threat? You know what I'm saying? I don't understand what, why you, I would love to be in that meeting to like ask the question, what's the problem?
0: I explained to her some of the problems parents raised at a dramatic meeting of the Community Education Council or CEC in December, 2019.
2: If we're gonna be honest here, most families in Regal Park and Forest Hills are not going to put their kids on extensively long commutes for the pleasure of
0: attending a subpar school. It just doesn't make any sense. I foresee additional traffic, more
3: pollution, kids getting home later, having to do their homework still, less time to rest, less time to spend time with their family, less time to socialize. We need to know what you're going to do to make the low performing yes. schools better instead of shipping out kids to yeah. the low performing
4: and
1: spreading it out to make everyone look better. I, I understand, I understand what they're saying because maybe if I was in their shoes, I would probably feel the same way because I felt that way too. Why I have to take Elias out of South Jamaica and bring him over to Forest
0: Hills? Shermaine's son, Elias, travels more than an hour each way to school. Every day, he takes two buses from their home in South Jamaica to attend sixth grade at a school in Forest Hills.
1: We come here all the time. We come to this side of the, the the fence all the time. So why can't you come on this side? It's not good enough for you to come to our neighborhood. We always have to, why we always have to uh, seek out like the, the good schools. And I feel those parents nervousness because they're gonna be challenged to wake up the kids early in the morning, but there are a lot of people that lives in South Jamaica that get up 3 and 4 o'clock in the morning just to get these kids in a different area just to go to school. So what if you have to do that? It is what it is. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know. I don't know. But this is very upsetting to find out, you know?
5: From NPR's Code Switch and Brooklyn Deep, this is School Colors. A podcast about how race, class, and power shape American cities and schools. I'm Mark Winston Griffith. And I'm Max Friedman. In some ways,
0: this entire season was prompted by the parents who organized against diversity planning in District 28. We started all this with that CEC meeting where their fear and anger spilled out into public.
3: Parent after parent after parent, they were complaining and they were screaming. I had never seen anything like that before.
5: Parents who opposed the diversity plan said it was an act of social engineering, imposed from on high, devised in secret.
6: But when it got wind to people who are more experienced and affluent and know what this jargon means, they were like, what? And it awoke in a sleeping giant.
5: That meeting raised a lot of eyebrows, including ours. We promised we'd come back to it, and here we are. Who are these parents? What do they believe and why? Why were they so ready to fight so hard against a plan that didn't exist?
4: Diversity plan sounds amazing, right? But when I started hearing that they were going to these the schools,
7: that's when I was like, oh wait, what? No, we can't. The quality of the school isn't just the grades, it's also about building that community. And how do you build a community when you're shipping kids all over the place?
3: I didn't feel any way. I'm glad they didn't want our students over there because I didn't want them over here either. Things
7: got pretty ugly on Facebook. They just started calling people out as racist, and I can't believe people here are saying things that are racist. The whole f- attack with me was, you're just like a rich
4: housewife. What I have, I have because I busted my ass. Like, you don't know
8: where I come from. I'm like, you will fight that, I'm like, what are you afraid of? What are you afraid of?
0: In this episode, we let the opposition speak
5: for themselves. Welcome back to School Colors.
4: So do I start with my name or sure, just... Yeah. Okay, so my name is Fadia, as you guys know. I've been living in forest sales for about 15 or 16 years. Um, my son is currently in middle school.
5: Fadia Mahama is a senior director for a big social service agency in Queens. Are you originally
4: from Queens? No, I'm from Miami. Hmm. from Miami,
5: okay.
4: So my dad is originally from Lebanon. Um, he moved to Bolivia... And that's obviously that's where he met my mom. My mom is from Bolivia.
5: Bolivia is also where Fadia was born, but her family moved to Miami when she was seven.
4: My dad passed away when I was 12, so that you know it was a little bit obviously challenging because my mom doesn't speak English. She was working a minimum wage job, and uh, that's when the struggles happened. And uh, we, we made it through, I guess. Um,
5: and what brought you to Forest Hills?
4: The food in the restaurants.
5: (laughs) We laughed, but she wasn't kidding.
4: So my husband and I lived in Woodhaven, which we loved Woodhaven. uh, But then we wanted to kind of, we were always hanging out in Forest Hills. Many, 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 many years ago, there was a restaurant called Mardi Gras, which is, um, you know, Cajun food. And we used to come here every weekend to eat there.
5: As she spent more time in the neighborhood, she realized it would make a good place to settle down and start a family.
4: I was like, you know what, the school districts here are really, really good, so let's move here, so eventually we have kids. You know, they can also go to school here, and then we have... I mean, it's a perfect combination, right? Like, great school, amazing restaurants, and great stores. Austin Street is really great, and, and then um, as we kept coming here, we just loved the vibe, we loved everything, so we found an apartment, and we moved.
0: Faria liked one school in particular, PS101, the school in the gardens.
4: For me, it just had a really good balance, so we moved in that zone. We wanted to make sure that my son went to one-on-one.
0: Okay. Cool. So how did you first hear that there was going to be a diversity plan? Or a in the school. You
4: heard
0: about it yeah. in school. school? Do you remember when? Apart from? Who? It was
4: right before that meeting. Like, I so had no like, clue. So I remember seeing articles. Right. But I was like, diversity plan sounds amazing, right? Because that's what we want. That's so, why we live here. Right. But then when... Some, like there was one parent who broke, that's what it was. One parent broke it down on social media. and One of the, the, the community groups, they broke it down exactly what that meant. And that's when all the parents started like, oh wait, what?
0: And when they broke it down, what did they say?
4: The de-zoning, that's, I think that's the only thing I remember it was like de-zoning the schools.
0: You're gonna hear this a lot, especially from Fadia. De-zoning, here's what that means. Most schools in the district have a zone. Every student in that zone is guaranteed admission to their zone school. The zone schools on the north side are almost all overcrowded because so many people, like Fadia, choose where they live based on where they want to send their kids to school. Rezoning would mean changing the boundaries that determine who's entitled to attend each school. Dezoning would mean getting rid of those boundaries entirely so that no one gets priority for any school. That idea freaked Thaddea out
4: But when I started hearing that they were going to dezone the schools, that's when I was like, oh wait what no we're, we can't like you can't dezone the schools like parents are already struggling enough you know like f- for me to send my kid 30 minutes away from my house doesn't work for me it doesn't work for my lifestyle doesn't work just and I only have one son. I can't even imagine parents that have two three, four kids going in different directions. Like it's just I'd have some moms cry to me and say, you know, I live here in a one bedroom apartment with my in-laws, three kids. You know, we we we've made that sacrifice so my kid can go to 101 on one or my kid can go to Russell Sage. You know, and now that the rumor was that they were gonna dezone the school was like I can. I just I w- I cannot have my kid go on a bus and go to another school. Again, there's just a rumor, but as parents, we freak out sometimes, right? whether it's a rumor or not, we worry right? That's just a normal reaction for many
7: parents. I think the little information that was given to us, we started putting two and two together.
5: Jean is another parent in Forest Hills. she grew up in Texas, the daughter of Korean immigrants. She asked us not to use her last name
7: out of the people that live here I you know, me plus a few others have done extensive research on the diversity plan. Uh, we've really delved into the history and, and also documentation. So I've, I've got a lot of documentation. She
5: does, in fact, have a lot of documentation. She gave us a flash drive full of it.
7: And I found a presentation that the Department of Education uh, presented to the C- at the CEC meeting in October. And in there there was a slide and I don't know that parents or people even caught it or even the C E C members realized what it was about, but the slide very specifically was about dezoning. So they wanted to dezone our middle schools.
0: We looked at the presentation she's talking about. The slide is actually about rezoning, not dezoning. Still, it was a clear signal that changes were afoot. So she kept digging.
7: People started looking at the schools and the state test scores and wondering, wait a minute, why 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 are they shuffling children around? Is it just for the sake of mixing up um, the, the races? Because if it's a racial issue, right, isn't that unconstitutional? And then on the other hand, um, are, if they're going to be shuffling kids around, what's the likelihood and where would they be stunning them?
0: One document that made her think this was just about mixing up the races was the report of the city's School Diversity Advisory Group, or the SDAG. Earlier that year, the SDAG had recommended as a long-term goal that every school in the city should strive to match the demographics of its district.
7: And you did the basic number crunching in terms of um, the racial composition because that was put out there by the DOE as something they were looking at. You know, you realize there is no way for them to fulfill that without uh, forced transit.
5: One more key piece of evidence for Gene was that there had recently been a diversity plan created for another district, 15 in Brooklyn. That diversity plan changed the rules for middle school admissions in that district. Although middle schools in District 15 were already unzoned, so this was not a dizoning plan. Jean believed District 28's plan would also focus on middle schools, and she knew
0: that for middle school, the city doesn't provide yellow school buses, which meant if they were forced to go to middle school far from home, they'd have to drive or take public transportation.
7: Everybody around here... South Queens, Central Queens, all working parents, many, many are dual income families. Um, And then I imagine down in the South where you have a higher poverty index, wouldn't the burden be even worse for somebody who's a single parent having to take and drop off the kid, you know, whatever distance it was. So people were like, "Okay, wait a minute. If we're going to have to send our child to a school, how long is it going to take? One parent actually timed it
0: and shared
2: this video to Facebook. I am going to make a trip that will illustrate what a typical commute will look like for middle schooler using public transportation from Riga Park to South Jamaica. I will use Halsey Middle School right here as point A, and Redwood Middle School as point B. I'm approaching 63rd Drive subway station. Time is 7:39, 7:40. So it took me like 10 minutes to walk. last stop, I'm on Continental, no trains. Okay, it's uh, 7.55, it's 8.07. All right, what time is it? 8.10. Time is 8.13 a.m. I'm waiting for Q111 bus. Okay, so final stop, 8.40 a.m. It took me an hour and 10 minutes to get from Halsey Middle School, to Redwood. Man, it's a long commute, i got to tell you. It's a long, exhausting commute.
7: It scared people. I mean, it's it's a massive quality of life impact that people, um, I think, don't understand.
5: As documents and articles and theories circulated on the north side throughout the fall, like-minded parents kept finding each other. And Jean decided it was time to get organized.
7: And I said, guys, I think we gotta, we got to start a Facebook group.
5: <laughs> she called it Queens Parents United. So Queens Parents United, what, how would you describe the mission?
7: It's protecting, protecting your local neighborhood schools.
5: Which means protecting your right to go to the school in your neighborhood.
7: The quality of the school isn't just the grades. It's also about building that community. And how do you build a community when you're shipping kids all over the place? You don't, you don't have that. You lose it. You know, and if you have an immigrant neighborhood, you know, what good is it to send those kids out, you know, to a school where they have to commute an hour away if it's not by choice, right? It, it doesn't. It doesn't help them. And I, I feel like it's a very targeted way to actually, um, what, what's what's the word, to, to break up communities.
5: Within a month, she says something like 800 people joined Queen's Parents United on Facebook. Some of them she knew, but most of them she didn't. She had barely been on Facebook before all of this, so she was surprised by just how many parents signed up. But at least one Northside parent we spoke to was not at all surprised
0: by the scale of this response.
9: I remember reading an article naming the districts that won the diversity grant. So, you know, just reading the news, I remember reading that and thinking, oh, shit. That's going to be something else here. <laughs> right away being like fuck that's going to be I mean because this is like this district is a tale of two cities it's totally racially segregated um I mean these Forest Hills parents are like the worst just the worst I just knew it was going to be a lot Tia
0: Keenan lives in Kew Gardens, which is next door to Forest Hills on the north side.
9: You know, I consider myself part of like the striving class. You know, we live in a home in New York City. We have immense privilege, but we did that through working in restaurants, two incomes, 15 hour days. You know, I was a chef. He was sommelier and we just busted. We were just grinding. Once I moved into this house, it was the first time, really when I got married, it was the first time I'd ever been financially secure in my life. I told myself that I had to start doing some organizing because I didn't feel comfortable with abundance without some sort of
0: redistribution of that. Unlike Jean, she already saw herself as an activist, long before any diversity plan came along. She had started a local organization called Neighbors Against White Supremacy.
9: I'm part of the culture of the North. I'm part of the Northern culture of the white people who are used to being listened to, who are used to getting the resources that they want. But my personal politic is to use that culture to pass that power off in whatever way I can.
0: Tia is the only person we talk to who lives in the North but sends her child to a school in the South, a charter school in Jamaica.
9: What's your biggest resource in the school district? It's your kid. Your kid is your biggest resource. People think it's tax dollars, but it's actually your children. When you send your child to school, you're sending your resource, especially as a white parent, um, as a parent with privilege. Because all the privileges and resources that are attached to my son go with him.
0: And what are those?
9: A loudmouthed mother who will raise hell, someone who knows how to write a letter to a politician, someone who knows how to call up an agency and ask questions or send emails and file complaints, um, someone who is home enough so that my son goes to school every day well-rested, well-fed, and feeling loved. The resources that economically and racially privileged parents have are about the ways that we don't experience violence in society. (laughs) You know, it's the stability of not being a target. Um, And those are endless, those resources, That's part of white community wealth too. It's not just a dollar, it's all the ways that power is available.
5: We have to point out, Gene and Fadia are not white. Many opponents of the diversity planning process are not white. But Gene and Fadia are not necessarily representative of their movement. When we started reporting this season, we asked around who had been most active in organizing against the diversity plan. Most of the parents we were told about were white. And we tried to talk to some of those white parents.
0: They turned us down. A couple of them had already moved out of the city or left the public schools and said they wanted to put this all behind them. One woman told me on the phone she'd been warned about us. You don't have a good reputation in this community, she said. I've been to your website. You only care about black people. She was very polite. But she told me,
5: I wish for you to fail. Whether or not white parents wanted to talk to us, they were some of the loudest voices in the room when the simmering opposition came to a boil at the meeting where we started this season on December 5th, 2019. We'll revisit that meeting and tell you what happened next after the break. Peace. Mark here. If you just can't get enough of school colors and you live in New York City, we have some good news for you. We're having a live event. Join us for School Colors Live at the Queens Public Library on Thursday, December 15th at 6 p.m. Mark and I will interview School's
0: Chancellor David Banks, then talk about the making of the show and take questions from the audience. Get more information and reserve your free tickets at the link in the show notes. Co sponsored by the Queens Public Library, Chalkbeat New York and the city. See you there. To quickly recap from episode one, the Department of Education hired an urban planning firm called WXY to facilitate the diversity planning process in District 28. That process was supposed to formally begin in early 2020. But when it became obvious that some parents, especially Northside parents, had serious concerns, staff from the DOE and WXY went to the December meeting of the Community Education Council to present and field questions. Right, good
7: afternoon, everyone.
5: The CEC was used to seeing maybe 10 or 20 people at a meeting. At least 250 people showed up to this one.
9: You
7: you seats you available for get, all of Queens, District Stephanie, 28. That's ridiculous. I know there are 112 in there, something like that. Oh if District 28
5: The CEC may have been caught off guard by the size of the crowd, but Fadia Muhammad saw it coming, so she got there early to get a good seat.
4: We went there, I think, an hour earlier because we knew. From what we've heard from the community, what we saw on Facebook, what we saw in our PA meetings, we were like, okay, this is going to, parents are going to show up. So we knew.
5: Fadi is the one whose voice you hear behind the camera.
4: Do all the schools look like the district? And if they don't, why not? Let's think about that. And let's it's New York City. Them. It's already diverse. So,
5: parents kept asking for specifics about the diversity plan, which the presenters couldn't really provide because there was no plan.
9: There is no plan. I don't know because there's no plan
5: yet. This is not my plan. I'm not making a plan. This is (laughs) intended to be a community plan.
4: I know this sounds like a broken record, but
3: there is no plan, and so
9: this is- What a
4: waste. Yeah, and then after that meeting, we left going, okay, there is no plan. So things changed. So you believed it? No, I don't. I didn't believe it. (laughs) I believe there was a plan, but they didn't want to share it with us because people were so pissed.
5: But well, why did you believe that? Did you believe that because of, of evidence of what you saw coming from W X Y? Yeah, the way C- they
4: presented it, that was like we were kind. I was like, "Well, you're not prepared for this meeting." <laughs> but
5: I mean, but did, you, but did you feel like there was was there any anything that they said or did that gave you the impression that there was there was like a master plan that they just weren't being forthcoming with?
4: No, but I I just felt that I felt. I mean, there's no way you're gonna. F- there's no way you're going to invest this much amount of money to hire a consulting company that has nothing to do with education if there is no plan.
0: Okay, I take this a little personally. That consulting company, WXY, is an urban planning firm, and to say that urban planning has nothing to do with education negates, like, my whole career. I went to school for urban planning, And it was my thesis in urban planning that eventually turned into the first season of this podcast. That's why we say it's a show about American cities and schools, because Mark and I believe you can't understand one without the other. But long before we started working on the podcast, when I started my research, what I hoped to do was bring the tools of an urban planner to the field of education. Tools like data analysis, mapping, and facilitation. In other words, exactly what you need to run something like a diversity planning process. And WXY got the job in District 28 because they had already done this. They had facilitated diversity planning in other districts, like District 15 in Brooklyn.
5: So WXY may not have had a plan, but they did have a framework. The process they used in District 15 was the template for the process in District 28. And at the center of that process was the diversity working group. 20 volunteers, parents, educators, and community leaders. They would be the ones to come up with an actual plan based on what they heard in public workshops around the district.
0: Parents like Jean had two problems with the working group right off the bat. One, the members of the working group were hand-picked by WXY. Two, their names were kept secret to protect their privacy. In response to parent outcry, those names were eventually made public. But for Jean, knowing who was on the working group only deepened her suspicions of the process.
7: One thing that came to my mind, well, they're talking about a diversity plan so that every school could have a racial breakdown that matches the district. The working group members didn't even match the the racial breakdown, the racial composition of the district. You know, they clearly weighted it more heavily towards... uh, POCs. A good chunk of the ones that were the parents had children in middle school already, which mean they, they would be out of the system and off to high school by the time the diversity plan would have, you know, been enacted. And then we found that they had students on the group. Why would you have students? And we suspected that those two students were coached, or how were they selected? The community groups were groups no one had ever heard of before. I don't know, I could be, I could be wrong, but we thought that was disturbing.
5: There's a lot there. Whatever you think of her specific complaints, here's the bottom line. Jean believed that WXY and the DOE had stacked the deck, that the members of the working group reflected their agenda, who they cared about and who they didn't. In fact, Jean saw WXY at the
0: center of a web of organizations who were working together to impose their vision on District 28. She's an architect, and she used her design skills to create a diagram that she shared with other parents, We asked her to show it to us. I'm just reading what you're showing me. It's a diagram that says, at the top it says, community-led or community-fed, question mark. The D28 diversity plan has been an illegitimate community engagement and planning process behind closed doors. It does not explain how or why a group of ideologic activists... uh, unelected by the local communities will be gathering and presenting recommendations for the D28 diversity plan and then there's a kind of a flow chart but can you explain the flow chart?
7: Okay so here it, it shows the activist group that we that we saw connected with um, the SDAG report and then starting to uh, come into the conversation for District 28 and at the center of it is WXY. We see WXY um, also cropping up and showing up here and there and all of that being intertwined and connected. So it didn't seem like this was coming from the community.
0: Jean insists that if diversity planning had come from the community, she would support it. She says she would welcome a grassroots effort to bring people together to talk about issues in District 28. This is a big if. But if you take what the folks who are... Supposed to be facilitating this diversity planning process. If you take what they've said in public at face value then theoretically this process that never really got off the ground is Would be the space to have a sort of dialogue that you're talking about a more kind of open dialogue about these issues No,
7: no, no, I don't believe it. I, I don't think this was started and begun with in good faith they had very clear ideas about what they wanted to impose on not just our school district, but but citywide.
0: It wasn't just WXY. There were parents in the district who supported diversity planning. But Jean didn't think they really represented the community.
7: The, the same people that are speaking out for the diversity plan, these very strong integration activists, it's like the same few voices. And they're all, like, white and from the north end of the district. I don't think that they're hearing really what the voices are in the South. <laughs> what is it that they want? What is it they that they need? You know, Lorraine Reed came out, and she was very clear about what they want.
5: Lorraine Reed was a name that came up in almost every conversation we had with parents from the North.
7: Uh, there was a woman we uh, that that came to a lot of the CC meetings.
4: Her name was Lorraine. I didn't think there was a problem until I went to that meeting, and I heard Lorraine
2: talk. I mean, you, you see Lorraine, right? You, you have you Everybody
0: tells me about Lorraine. She's one person. Everyone tells me about that one person.
5: Lorraine gained this sort of fame on the North side because she was one of the few parents from the South who spoke up at that CEC meeting on December 5th, and especially because of what she
6: said.
3: Why aren't we, instead of worrying about spreading out all the inequalities, Focus on the, the, the schools in the South. Build, <laughs> build the schools up in the South with the necessary, the basic necessary tools that the students need, and provide our children in the South with the opportunities that nurture their.
0: That was some of the most enthusiastic applause of the night.
3: I want to know how did that make you feel? Great. Me personally, let me tell you what. I thought it was awesome. Honestly, I was sitting there and I said it to my son. I was thinking, great. Here are these people thinking that I'm on their side, when in reality, I'm trying to protect our kids from being shuffled to a place where. Their kids do school shootings.
5: I wasn't quite expecting that.
3: You could cheer all you want. I know what your motivation is. You don't want the little black kids in your school messing your stuff up. But that's not it. I don't want your kids in our school shooting our schools up. I didn't feel any way. I'm glad they didn't want our students over there because I didn't want them over here either. And it's not because I have a problem, it's because historically I've seen what they're capable of. I wasn't offended like some people were offended. I was like, good, they don't want us and we don't want them.
0: Lorraine says she went to that meeting primarily to call attention to what her kid's school was lacking. She got a fair amount of attention, so she tried to capitalize on it. After the meeting, she wrote a strongly worded email.
3: It wasn't pretty, and it wasn't cursing. It was a diplomatic ripping you a new one.
0: We cut it down for brevity. Now here's Mark with a dramatic reading.
5: Please let this email serve as a request, notification, demand, or whatever the terminology is or needs to be, to have this matter addressed post-haste as our children, my child, is slated to perform on December thirteenth, two 2019 in an auditorium that is pretty much in the dark. The lighting in the auditorium to facilitate any event does not work. I would not want to invite anyone to this event for the feeling of embarrassment and shame would be too great. If I were a parent from the North, I wouldn't want my child bust across town to a school such as this either. Next up on the list of totally unacceptable places in this building is the gym. Let me just say, I have video of roaches in the broken down, dilapidated, non-functioning bleachers. Not acceptable. How can you turn a blind eye to conditions that are and can become an out-of-control health hazard? I'll wait for your responses. Sincerely, Miss Lorraine Reed.
3: I wrote the letter and I cc'd the mayor, the chancellor. I cc'd my dead mother. And parents, this is how I got to know a lot more parent leaders, started coming to me and saying, can we help?
0: One of the parents who saw Lorraine's email was Fadia Mahama.
4: So we were kind of like, how is this even happening next to us, right? Like, that shouldn't happen. So all the schools should be at the same level? I mean, obviously not, because, you know, maybe a little bit here and there, because that's just the way life is, Right. Uh, but they should always be great, no matter what. They should all have lights. None of them should have roaches. They should all have new, you know, like a good, you know, just the books that they need, the computers that they need. Like, they should all have that. Like, there shouldn't be one has more than the other. Like, that should not happen.
0: Had you, did, had you like, been to other schools in the district?
4: Uh, no, not into that. Yeah. Yeah, not into that diversity. That's why I was shocked when Lorraine talked about her school. I was like, How? Like, that was like heartbreaking for me because I was, you know, I can't even imagine. That was just that was a little too much to hear that, especially
3: here.
0: So after you wrote that letter, people from the north side of the district did reach out to you. Oh and- my
3: God! Let me tell you something. I was in tears. I had parents that I didn't even know who knew who I was. That's saying, is that what's going on? The outcry from the parent leaders were ridiculous. It was like, how can they do this to your children? Let us know what, everybody. It was like family was like reaching out and was like, they're not gonna help you, we'll help you.
0: These parents wanted to help her son's school by donating money and supplies. But Lorraine says she couldn't take the money because her PTA didn't have a bank account. And she had her doubts about some Northside parents' motivations.
5: There were some people who generally wanted us to get our school up to a certain standard, she told us. But there were others who only wanted to help us so our children would not end up in their schools. For Tia Keenan, this is exactly the problem with how many of the most vocal
0: Northside parents approach the diversity plan.
9: The parents who are anti-diversity planning in, in the northern part of the district, like they're always like, We think it's messed up that like schools in the South haven't, you know, are crumbling and like don't have the budgets that they deserve. But when you talk actual numbers with them, like I did at a CEC meeting when I got up and said, okay. You all seem to want the south to get resources, so let's pool all our district PTA money and redistribute it. And they were like, the room went fucking crazy. You know, they're not they're not interested. It's easy to say I want everyone to be equal when you don't actually have to invest anything in that equity. <laughs> So that tends to be the thing here. It's like, I just, you know, I want those people to have power, but I don't want to have to give up any power myself. And that's not how things work. People just don't understand power or what they do understand about power. They're not willing to admit to themselves. They want all of these things to happen without any change. From them. Without any change to their lives, to their communities, to their politics, nothing can change. But they support change.
5: Tia was not the only Northside parent pushing back against the pushback. In the weeks that followed, two sides emerged, and the conflict between them got ugly. After the break... You know, I'm not just a journalist. I'm a community organizer. And when Max and I first set out to make School Colors, we always envisioned the podcast as a tool for organizing and education. So every time we get an email from someone telling us how they're using the podcast in their work or their community, it's like music to our ears. Seriously.
0: The thing is, we don't know about any of that activity unless you tell us. So if you have shared School Colors with a class, community, or group, or even if you're just thinking about it, please fill out our audience survey. It should only take a few minutes. You can go to schoolcolorspodcast.com slash survey or follow the link in the show notes. Again, that's schoolcolorspodcast.com slash survey. Thanks. It was clear to everyone involved that the December CEC meeting did not go well. But the DOE and WXY didn't back down. They tried again. They came back to the next CEC meeting in January. Instead of a small meeting room at the district office, they met in a school auditorium to accommodate the crowds. Bigger venue. Same
5: vibes.
9: A plan to diversify a Queens school district is prompting a protest from parents tonight. Tonight at 6.30, leaders of Community Education Council 28 will convene
3: again. A contentious meeting, with parents lashing out over a plan to boost diversity
9: in their school district.
2: Unless proven otherwise, it's our assumption that Coran's and WXY is trying to ram through a de forced bussing quota plan and disguising it behind the smoke and mirrors of this false community involvement.
5: This second CEC meeting was not so much an opportunity for people to learn and ask questions, and more a chance for different groups of parents to flex their political muscle. Parents who were against
0: the diversity planning process all showed up wearing red. But there was also a much better coordinated effort among parents who wanted to see the process move forward, and they did not go unnoticed by Jean.
7: They came out and they they just started calling people out as racist and i can't believe people here are saying things that are racist and you know people weren't saying things that were racist they were saying saying their concerns or genuine concerns about putting a 10 year old on a subway or you know having to commute very far distances you know these are any concerns that any family would have any (laughs) any working family would have and um it seemed like they were kind of um coming out, and it was a very coordinated thing, you know, because I I noticed it. I I recorded some of it, and I recognized that some people that were saying these things were all kind of sitting together. They knew each other. So it didn't seem like, hey, these were um, random people speaking out and saying, you know, we got to have this. (laughs) So... Well, the,
0: let, let me ask you about that, though, because you also are coordinated and you have a group and you know each other and you sit together. So what's
7: the, what's the difference? Yeah. Because I didn't coordinate anything before the diversity plan. And it looks like these people were well aware of it beforehand. And these people were all part of these these groups that were involved with the SDAG report. Appleseed New York, Integrated NYC, I mean the, the parents were? Yes. Yes.
5: These are all school equity, fair funding, and integration-focused advocacy groups that Gene sees as ideological and problematic.
0: For the record, we don't know how many, if any, of these parents were affiliated with these groups before the diversity plan. If they are parents in the district and they have those beliefs and they have worked with those groups in the past, does that disqualify them from speaking out on this? No,
7: it doesn't. They can have. Everyone's entitled to their opinion, but to call everyone out as racist for having their own opinion is not right. And for for them to try to start canceling people (laughs) for their beliefs and for their genuine concerns about how they raise their family and how they're able to survive with these additional burdens being placed, it's not right. So um, when I talk about these social justice warriors, uh, I'm kind of saying it in jest, but I do think that there are people out there that will just cancel anyone (laughs) if they don't agree with them.
0: Gene used the word cancel a lot. When we asked her what she meant by that, she said she didn't necessarily mean that her friends and allies lost jobs or platforms, but that the supporters of the diversity plan were, in her words, aggressive and abusive. It felt like bullying,
5: she says. And where this mostly went down was on Facebook. We were denied access to most of the Northside Facebook groups, but from what we heard from parents like Jean and Fadia, the arguments were intense and personal.
4: Things got pretty ugly on Facebook. I mean, I've had the worst things said to me that I've never even thought I will hear in my life. Anyone who was against the diversity plan was like attacked in a way that they felt that if you're against the diversity, then you're you're either racist or you don't want the kids from Jamaica coming to Forest Hills. Like it was just awful. It was awful to have conversations with anyone.
7: They were vicious. Some of them were going onto Facebook and saying that posts came from our group, and they, you know, very racially, um, you know, biased or racially tinged, uh, you know, t- tinged with racism, and showing it to our elected officials and saying it came from our group. Are you saying that the
0: people were fabricating posts that had not come?
7: From- yes. Yes.
0: Jean later told us she heard about this secondhand. We can neither confirm nor deny that anyone was fabricating Facebook posts and falsely attributing them to Queen's Parents United.
5: But even the most controversial posts that she would acknowledge, Jean didn't see them as crossing a line.
7: I mean, I think that we do have a lot of families in this area that are immigrants. Maybe their English isn't the best. Maybe they're not so politically correct when they when they say, oh, that's a bad school. Maybe that's not how they intended it. But, um, you know... I never saw anything outright that was it was inflammatory and outright racist. We asked Fadia about this, too.
0: Did you see anything happen on Facebook that justifies the people feeling like there's racism in this community?
4: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Th- there were some parents that said some things that I was shocked that they said it. And I was like, this guy needs to be out of Facebook, and somebody needs to put him in his place, or or... or Women, you know, there was both sides. Um, But I also felt that a lot of parents were being attacked that were not racist. If we want to do better for our kids, if we want to, we have to listen to each other. Instead of attacking someone and automatically calling them a racist, you can take that moment as a teaching moment. Because sometimes people, sometimes it's their ignorance that they don't know.
9: You know, I think we live in a country where most people don't have any kind of race or class analysis.
5: Tia Keenan is one of the Northside parents that others accused of being especially aggressive on Facebook.
9: Where racism is sort of like a personal flaw that people have. So you're like either racist or you're not racist. And like what makes you racist is like calling someone the N-word. It's not buying property in a white neighborhood and then getting upset (laughs) because you think that property means that you should be able to maintain historically and presently systematically racist structures. (laughs) Um, So I think people, you know, most white people think of themselves as good white people. And if they're good white people, then they're not racist. Um, They don't think that they can be racist and also be good people. So to tell themselves that they're good people, they have to not be racist and not interrogate their own racism or the ways that they benefit from racism.
0: And Tia told us that on Facebook, the opponents of the diversity plan weren't only playing defense. They also went on the
9: attack. They like basically identified all the like strongest anti-racist or pro-integration people in the community. And then they basically, like, picked us off. They set honeypots on social media. I fell for one. That's how mine happened, where they would be like, like, I just want to hear from one parent in the Northern part of district who sends their kids to Jamaica and is happy about that. So I answer, hi, I'm that parent. I send my kid to school in Jamaica. I'm fine with it, blah, blah, blah. And then they just all came. They started... Saying, you know, like, the whole attack with me was you're just, like, a rich housewife and I know where you work.
0: Tia has written several books and says she strongly suspects, though she can't prove it, that a parent from Forest Hills who happens to work for her publisher interfered with her sales.
9: Threatening my job, uh, my livelihood, (laughs) and just really fucking with me. I mean, just really... Messing with with me and my relationships and and who I am in the community. Like I'm a I'm a grassroots organizer who's like anti-racist, anti-capitalist, anti-authority, and so painting me in the community groups as a rich housewife who's never had to work a day in her life. Like I'm a working class person. You know this is how I earned a dollar at a time to buy a house in a fucking neighborhood that I don't belong in in so many ways.
5: Fadia says parents who supported the diversity plan came for her in the same way.
4: So so because I live in forest Hills, people have this idea that I come from money and that I, you know, so, you know, she says some things like, oh, I, I hope you never have to go through what some of these families had to go through. You don't know what it's like. And I'm like, how do you know? I don't, like, I started working at 14 so I can help my mom with the mortgage, you know. So I like I know what it's like to struggle. I know what it's like to, you know what I mean? I I I've been through it, and the reason why one of the things that I do and I've always tried to advocate for families is because I've been there, and I do live in Forest Hills now. But I like I worked really hard. I struggled my entire life to get to where I, where I am today. What I have, I have because I busted my ass. I worked. From 7 in the morning to 11 o'clock at night for many years. Like, you don't know where I come from. It got ugly. To a point that a lot of us were like, we're done with social media. Because it was, it also becoming very hurtful and very, like, depressing. And it was just not, it wasn't pretty.
0: As time went on, many of the Northside Parent Facebook groups got a negative reputation. Especially Queen's Parents United.
4: Jean, who runs Queen's Parents United, I, like... We're friends, and she's awesome, And um, but there were other parents where I felt was not, I didn't want to associate myself with them.
0: Faria decided to start her own Facebook group called Our Children's Voice. While she may have wanted to set herself apart from Queen's Parents United, they were up to basically the same thing. Both groups circulated online petitions, Faria's Against Dezoning, Jeans for More Transparency in the Diversity Planning Process.
5: Jean wouldn't say outright that the discourse in her Facebook group became toxic, but she did eventually shut down the comments for a few months, anyway.
7: This is like this on every Facebook group. You have people that, you know, five, five, ten people. It's the same people always posting. So you know, they're not really. It's it's great. Everybody was really helpful with their contributions early on, but at some point, it seemed like it was only those people that were speaking out and um, and and. uh You know, it wasn't moving things forward.
0: All this mess was happening almost exclusively between parents on the north side, but the rest of the district was
5: watching. Jean and Fadia believe their concerns are purely pragmatic, but that's not how it sounds on the south side.
8: For every group... For every diversity group that you join or that you get to know to help bring the schools to be desegregated, there are, like, five groups that want to keep it the way it is.
5: Allison Bell is a parent who lives in Rochdale Village in South Jamaica.
8: And they get lawyered up. They get LLC. Like, they really—I'm like, you will fight that. I'm like, what are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? You already got a head start. You already got the skin color. Like, like what else do you want? Like, why, what are you afraid of my kid crossing over? But for somebody to really fight to keep, you know, my child out of a certain school and you don't have no other reason, it's not because she's a failing student. So what could it be? I just, I just don't get that. But there are groups like that. I think, I forgot what one is, Queen something, Parent something. Just, I just cannot believe some of the things that, you know, and they really fight, they fight probably harder than me. Are you okay? You know, and that's crazy. I cannot believe that. That's crazy.
6: What the diversity CEC meetings uncovered to me was th- the parents certainly did not want children of color in their neighborhoods.
0: Pat Mitchell was the principal of PS48. She was also on the diversity working group.
6: That was startling. That scared the shit out of me, right? Because these parents were heated. And I'm thinking, what do you think is gonna happen if my kids come sit next to your kids? What do you think is gonna happen? So that to me was both eye-opening and profound and sad. That has to change. So I don't know how you do that. I don't know how you change people's hearts. I can change policy. We can, you know, we can we can all change policy at some point. And practices, well how do you change people's hearts? I don't know, I don't have the answer to that.
0: There seem to be two conversations going on here, just as isolated from one another as the north and south of the district are.
5: Pat, Allison, and many others believe the opposition to diversity planning is driven by a fear that south side families, with all their perceived chronic poverty and low educational standards, will corrupt north side schools and the Northside way of life.
0: But Fadia and Jean say it's not about that at all. It's about a burdensome commute. It's about keeping communities intact. It's about a process that was not, in their view,
5: open and democratic and conceived in good faith. The thing is, what rang louder than the words Northside parents spoke at those CC meetings was the intensity and emotion with which they used them. It was how viscerally threatened they were by what at the end of the day was simply a conversation about having a conversation about integration. For anyone who has witnessed racialized fear before, or is just aware of some of the history we've described on this podcast, this felt all too familiar. When you look at history, right, and you listen to the school colors, there were people um, who defied integration at every turn, who really pushed back against this notion that other children would be coming into their neighborhood. And history has not treated them very well. Um, You must have some idea that, you know, that you were being perceived along the same lines. And so how do you, I mean, I want to give you an opportunity to to speak to that Um, because I know you don't think of yourself as a racist, and yet there are people who say, that you can give a lot of reasons for resisting integration, but at the end of the day, you just don't want your child to be close, you know, be sitting next to a black or a brown student. You know, what do you, how, what do you say to to folks who believe that?
7: I would I would ask them to open their minds a bit because I don't think how well your child does in school is dependent upon the child that's sitting next to you uh, in the first place, right? I mean. My success in school had nothing to do with what child I was sitting next to. It had. There were other factors involved. I, I just don't think that integration in the schools is the end-all answer, and I think that people that are pushing this and saying that this is the end-all, they're being a bit fanatical and unrealistic because people will naturally assimilate and integrate. I think it's happening. I don't think that... Um, a big forceful push is is necessary. I think that you will have much more support when people come together on their own and it does happen I understand the frustrations that um, i can't i can't say i i've in that boat the same boat as a, a black person right the uh, the frustrations of the hundreds of years of discrimination but I, I face discrimination all the time. I'm a female. <laughs> I've, been, I've been groped. I've been harassed. I've been, I've been, my pay has been cut. You know, I've had reduced salaries. I've been, I've been harassed, you know, in the, in the work environment. You know, things you don't expect. But, you know, <laughs> I, I, you know I, I believe in karma. You know, all of this happens for a reason. I'm going to try to do what I can to improve myself and push ahead. And it's not for the government to intervene and say this or that it should be the right way to do things.
0: What are you what are you afraid of? What's your nightmare scenario for all of this?
7: My nightmare scenario would be that if the diversity plan pushed through and we found out that because now it's let's just hypothetically say it's um, it's now um, our zone school has now been de-zoned, and they've eliminated all the zoning. No more neighborhood schools, and it's, it's all lottery. She ends up at some middle school where, you know, in, in terms of my work, it becomes because uh, uh, it's it's not going to be a burden for my husband because he's got a job with the city, and I'm, all the, all the uh, child-rearing responsibilities fall on me. So it's, um, it's going to be my burden to drop her off, and pick her up, and get to work, and back, and and then when I get home, it's you know homework help, it's making sure homework is done, and studying, etc. All that stuff falls on me, and adding three hours to my day, or six hours, whatever it might be, um, even more than one hour, to me is is I'm, I'm too old for this. I <laughs> I'm too old, and I'm too tired, and time is valuable. I don't want to be spending it on something that I see is completely uh, completely a waste of time.
5: I have to confess that Jean and I will never see eye-to-eye on the diversity planning process. Most of our calculations just don't add up for me. But I know parenting is hard, full stop. And who among us hasn't fought like hell to protect what we believe is in our family's interest? She's learned that you either force the education system to respond to your needs, or you get steamrolled by it. This is also a system in which a lot of parents feel like good schools are a
0: scarce resource. And when you believe just a handful of schools are your only possible path to the American dream, you will fight tooth and nail to preserve them. That's next time on School Colors.
6: I believe exam. Exam, it was objective. It was fair. It lighted hope for the poor family, for the poor children like me. We felt under attack. We felt that we weren't
7: consulted, that we weren't respected.
4: We're used to be silenced, and we are afraid to fight because most of us are immigrant. Immigrants don't have voice. We don't have a right to vote. We cannot change anything. No one's going to hear us. All these notions about This community works hard and
5: this community is lazy. I've heard some terrible shit. People say, well, look, it's just some kids are smarter and some kids just aren't. That's not how talent works. We know
0: that now. These are not the only schools in New York City.
9: And yet we're paying attention to like 20,000 kids so they can lead more productive lives when my kid can't even have access to basic services.
7: I don't want to be dismissed. I don't want to be marginalized
4: and I don't want to be made invisible.
5: Cool Colors is created, reported, and written by me, Mark Winston-Griffith, and Max Friedman. Produced by Max Friedman with Carly Rubin and Alana Levinson. Additional reporting by Carly Rubin and Abbie Levine. Our editor is Soraya
0: Shockley. Our project managers are Soraya Shockley and Lindsay McKenna. Fact-checking by
5: Carly Rubin. Engineering by James Willets. Additional research by Anna Kushner. Original music by Avery R. Young and the Deacon Board. Additional music by Blue Dot Sessions. Special thanks to Natalie Dauphin, Simone Dornbach, Micah Morrison, and Akina Young. Thank you to Leah Donella, Steve Drummond, and the entire Code Switch team. Thank you to our executive producer, Yolanda Sanguini, and NPR's Senior Vice President of Programming, Anya Grunman. Season 2 of School Colors
0: was made possible by NPR, the Spencer Fellowship in Education Reporting at Columbia University,
5: and by the Brooklyn Movement Center. You can listen to the first season of School Colors at schoolcolorspodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time. Peace.